Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. So what did one toilet say to the other? You're looking a little flushed. And this, I, I read this one this past week, and I'd forgotten about it. I'd forgotten about it. My daughter told me this when she was 15, and it's my favorite joke probably ever. Y'all ready? What's red and bad for your teeth? A brick. <laughs> All right. So um, God talked to me last year through this word, anagonosko, which means to read the scriptures aloud, that we're going to spend a lot of time over the next, well, the next six months for sure, reading the scriptures aloud. So I'd like you to bring a Bible with you, if you would. We'll put them on the screen, but I'd like you to be able to follow along with the scriptures. So bring one with you every week. Today we're in Acts, starting in chapter 6, Acts starting in chapter 6, verse 3. But before we do that, um, do you ever feel like you don't know how to finish what you start? You ever feel like you start really good, but you... I have like 40 books I've started, but never finished, right? Maybe that's just me, you know? I've got a bathroom wall that still isn't painted. It's been mudded twice, but it's never been painted. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You start something, but you don't finish it. So this time of year, people make a lot of New Year's resolutions. In 2016, a study said 41% of people make New Year's resolutions. And by year's end, only 9% of them, only 9% of the 41% kept them. So we have a problem with finishing. 95% of those New Year's goals, according to those surveyed, have to do with physical health. They're fitness related. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to challenge you for life to stop making resolutions and stop making short-term goals and start making long-term vision. All right, so here's why. Do you know that most people that have gastric bypass regain their weight back? They go through this massive surgery and it changes their entire world, but yet they gain the weight back because food is not the issue. How they think about food is the issue. And for you, alcohol is not the issue. It's how you think about alcohol that's the issue. Or TV or porn or whatever it is, it's not the issue. How you think about you and how you think about those issues is the issue. And what the scriptures instruct us to do is to change the way we think. So this time of year, people say, I want to lose 10 pounds. So they go on a diet. I don't believe in diets. You know why I don't believe in diets? Because the first three letters are die. So this time of year, people go on diets to lose 10 pounds, and they don't change how they think, so they gain 15 pounds the next month. So what I would like to do is I would like to talk to you about changing your minds about your goals, changing how you think, and that starts by determining a target a long way out there and working towards that target. So I have a couple of written targets for my life, a couple of written targets. You ready for this? I want to play a round of golf lower than my age. You know what that means then? When I'm 72 or 75, I still have to be strong enough and in good enough shape to hit a ball 200 yards to break par. Yeah, come on, guys. 
that means I've got to do a certain number of things to get to that target. When I'm 80 years old, I want to walk down the road with my wife holding her hand with a pretzel in our hand and look over at her and gum that pretzel and go, I love you, sweetheart. That's what I want. I want to be able to buy ice cream for my grandkids and not worry if I can afford it or not. So all of those things are targets for out there. And what I do is instead of changing everything, I make one minor change now. What that one minor change would look like would be something like, well, I'm going to walk three days a week so that I can stay loose to be able to bend over and pick up my grandkids or great-grandkids. I'm going to, you ready? I'm going to put 10 bucks away now a week so that I can have money to buy ice cream for my grandkids. Are, are y'all following me here? Yeah. What we do is we think short term and then we create worse problems because we die at our diet and then we want to blow it all off the next week. And I'm saying just change one little thing. Drink eight eight-ounce glasses of water a day. I'm giving you some things that I've had over the years, by the way, and once you establish that habit, the next year you can add a new one. I will walk three times a week. I will drink next year, I will drink eight, eight-ounce glasses of water a week. Both of those things, would both of those things improve your health? Oh, do you think then you might be more inclined to play golf when you're 75? Okay. If you put 10 bucks a week now, do you think you're more inclined to have money than you had to, I'm going to save everything for three weeks, and then you don't have any money, and then you go blow more than you had to begin with? What this is called is it's called making a vision. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to follow the Scripture and write it down. So I would like you, if you would, stand to your feet in honor of God's Word. We're going to get to Acts chapter 6 in just a second. But I want to talk to you about how to finish strong today. And Habakkuk chapter 2 reveals this. Then the Lord replied, so this is God talking, write down the revelation. Don't write down your goals, write down the revelation. Write down what you want to accomplish by the end of your life. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that the herald, that would be you, could do what? You could work towards it. Make yourself an end goal that you can work towards and do what? Write it down. Do you know that most Fortune 500 CEOs, I'm talking like up in the 97, 98% of the people that do the most effective work in our country, some of the most effective work in our country, do you know those people all have written life goals? Written life goals, not written next week goals. Written what? Life goals. So that the herald may run with it. Because listen to this, as soon as you do that and you put it out there, it says, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, not the beginning. So we're not starting strong. We're doing what? Finishing strong. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, because all your visions are going to go through down times as well as up times. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not 
delay. What God promises this is that if you and him set a life goal for yourself, some life goals, and you write two or three or four of them down, I gave you four of mine, I believe, if you'll write those down and you'll start working for it now, God will help you accomplish those things that you dream for your life. Notice none of mine were, I want to be a multimillionaire and live on a yacht, because that's stupid for me, because that's out of focus. What wisdom keeps, a, a wise man keeps wisdom in view. You Make some goals that are worth living for, you know, like I want to have a relationship with my grandkids. I want them to come over to my house and let me go buy them ice cream so we can have fun together. Doesn't that sound better? Anyway, that's better than winning the lottery and they'll all hate you and never talk to you. So what happens is, here, when you come across a revelation for your life, an end game, Write it down, start working for it. Father, I pray that today you would add your blessing to your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Before you're seated, why don't you turn to somebody close to you and say, man, you sit next to somebody awesome today. Go ahead. Just tell them. (laughs) Hey, I get to join somebody awesome if you're with us online today. So when you come across an end worth pursuing, what do you do? What you do is, well, let me tell you a story about my grandpa. My grandpa was in his 70s, and we were out hunting one day, and there was a bird up in this tree. It was an old cottonwood tree down the Oklahoma bottoms, uh, the bottoms of the Arkansas River, and, and that cottonwood tree was blowing in the wind. There was a bird up top, and grandpa had been bragging about what a great shot he is, and he had an old 22 single shot uh, rifle in his hand. And, uh, you know, he's in his 70s, 22, 22 single shot. I'm not sure if you know how little that bullet is, but it's a very small bullet, and, and that cottonwood was 60 feet tall. We were probably 100 feet, 120 feet away from that bird, and it's swaying in the wind. And I looked at Grandpa. I said, yeah, you're such a great shot. Shoot the bird. So Grandpa pulled his gun up, you know, in his 70s. And of course, he's doing this because he's wobbling everywhere. And he's wobbling and wobbling and wobbling and wobbling. All of a sudden, he goes, pow! And the bird falls out of the tree dead. And I'm like, Grandpa, how in the world did you do that? You were wobbling everywhere. The wind's blowing in the tree. How did you do that? He said, well, I just waited till it got in my sights and I pulled the trigger. <laughs> and, and what I would like to say to you is this, is that one of the keys to finishing strong is to know what you're aiming at. To have a predetermined direction for your life. Don't worry about next week. Worry about 30 years from now. And then set that goal and then work toward that goal. All right. That being said, this message series is about finishing strong and it's inspired by a guy named Daniel. He was a, he was a young man. He was in Israel and about the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, somewhere in that zone, they picked him up from his homeland and they carried him off to Babylon where he was uh, basically a slave in the king's court. Now, when they took him away from his homeland, they destroyed the temple he had worshiped at. They literally destroyed it, burned it to the ground, pushed the rocks over, took the temple apart. And here he is now taken away from it his household taken away from his family in a foreign land. They changed his name when he got there. They changed it from uh, Daniel, which was talking about God, to Belshazzar, which was talking about the Babylonian gods. They, they changed his identity. They probably castrated him. 
And so his sexual identity was messed with, who he, how he viewed himself. His, they tried to change his diet. They changed his family realities. And yet, this young man, when he was around 80 years old, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So for 70 years in captivity, this guy is bowing his knees to God and praying towards a temple that no longer exists. And this kind of faithfulness carried him through. And by the way, everybody in this room knows the name of Daniel. But you know what you don't know? You don't know the name of the people that took him captive. You don't know so many things about this time, but you know him. Because when you're faithful, you leave a legacy that makes an impact on generations behind you. All right, so our goal as a church, my goal as a pastor, I want to write it down and make it plain so we can run with it. And here's the goal of this sermon series this year and actually where I feel God is directing me as a pastor and as a leader. It is my job to raise up a Daniel generation of disciples, of people who are fully committed to Jesus Christ and raise up a Daniel generation that will survive the onslaught this culture is throwing at you. Not just you, but your kids. But your kids. And I want us to raise up a generation of faithful kids who will follow Jesus, that no matter what you have to go through in this culture over the next dozen, two dozen, three dozen years, we will have a faithful remnant that will serve Jesus. So here we are today looking at Stephen's story. And, wow, I've got, uh, I've got 15 minutes to do most of this. Can you all listen fast? Sure. Good. All right. So, me, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was a deacon. But we want to talk a little bit about who he was. Um, so, the story goes like this. The church was growing really fast, and they were having trouble taking care of people. There were some widows that weren't being taken care of. There were things that the church was doing that wasn't getting done right anymore. And the, the, uh, the paid staff, if you will, the apostles, couldn't do all of this work anymore. And they needed somebody to do the work to make sure that the, these people didn't get lost. So what happened was they chose seven people. Uh, uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn the responsibility of taking care of these people over to them. And we, speaking of the apostles, will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of, the, of faith and the Holy Spirit. So what do we know about him already? We know that he's somebody that was respected. We know that he was full of faith. We know that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And we know that he was a reliable, hardworking person because they were trusting him to take care of people. Now, I, can I just talk for a second? Would that be all right? The, Stephen represents to me what I call life group leaders. Life group leaders are those people among you that you really care about people and you're willing to open up your home or will, will open, will open up a study, willing to open up a study to, to invite some people into your world to study the scriptures together and pray together, but more importantly that, to connect with and to serve and to minister to. You know, uh, somebody recently just went through a really, really rough time 
and their life group, they, they said they had a, a, a cooler on their front step, and they would just magically, food would appear in that cooler every day. It was their life group taking care of them. And, and what I want us to be is I want us to be a church where people are taken care of, but it doesn't have to be me taking care of because I don't even know some of you. Some of you, you sneak in the back door and run right back out, and you think you're serving God because you sneak in the door and come to a service and run away. But I'm telling you, you're not doing what you ought to do. You need to take the next step in, get in a life group. And some of you have been sitting in life groups for years. You need to lead one. The Bible says to entrust to reliable people the work of the ministry. So reliable. Stephen was reliable. He was hardworking. He was diligent. What else do we know about Stephen? Stephen, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, man full of God's grace and power. What do we know about him? He had grace, and he had what? Mm -hmm. He even performed great wonders and signs among the people. And some of you think this. I, I know, I know. Some of you think, man, I'm going to get all spiritual. I'm going to serve God, and everything's going to go perfect. I, I heard there was a, a, a piece of paper left on the floor around here somewhere that says, trust God and he will keep you safe. And I heard that. Somebody told me about that. I'm like, can I find whoever printed that and beat them? Where, where did you come up with the idea that trusting God's going to make you safe? You didn't get that from reading the Bible. Because people who trust God, what happened to him? This guy has great grace and power and wonders and signs. But notice the next two words. What happened? When you start being faithful to God, you can expect there to be opposition and pain in your life. I, I, hold on, wait, wait, wait. About three of you got that. I'm going to have to preach until somebody listens. And when you listen, you'll say amen. But y'all ready for this? When you become faithful to God, that's when real opposition, opposition will come to your life. And if you're trying to smooth your way through it and just skate through with no problems, you're in the wrong place. So what happened? Opposition arose from some members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, which is interesting to me. They were synagogue of freedmen, but yet they're trying to keep everybody in bondage. And we'll find out how in just a second. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of uh, Sicily and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom which the Spirit gave him when he spoke. So what happens is, um, submit to Jesus. You're not going to live on easy street. There will be opposition. There will be struggles. But know this. If you're fighting against the kingdom of darkness, you can expect them to fight back. And some of you, the reason you're on easy street is you're no, you're no threat to the devil, so he can let you do whatever because you're no threat to him. But as soon as you decide you're going to follow Jesus with all your heart, you become a dangerous thing to the kingdom of darkness, and that's when the devil's going to fight back. All right, so what do we know uh, about Stephen? We know that he had an accusation against him. So what is that accusation? We find it in Acts chapter 6, verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words. Notice the key there is blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they're accusing him of blasphemy. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and they produced some false witnesses. 
Notice these are false witnesses. But I want to talk to you about here is the difference between falsehood and truth. Because these false witnesses, what did they do? They testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against. Keyword, against. This holy place and against the law. Stephen was not speaking against the holy place and the law. Notice the two places. What's the accusation? Against the temple and against the law. Now, I've never noticed this before. I've read this passage probably 40, 50, 60 times. I've never noticed it. It's a long passage. I normally just sort of breezed right through it. But this time, I, the last time I was reading it, I was, I was reading it in Greek, so it made me slow down, and I had to think about it. I realized that they were making an accusation against Stephen that he was saying things about the temple and about the law. And they were taking those as being against the temple and the law when actually Stephen was speaking about the temple and about the law. And what did, so they said, we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and change the customs Moses has handed down to us. Now, listen, Stephen probably was saying Jesus is going to destroy this place. And he probably was saying he's going to change the customs Moses handed down to us. But he wasn't speaking against them. He was speaking about the fulfillment of them. That's a nuance. But I need you to catch this. He wasn't speaking against them. He was actually speaking of the fulfillment of them. Why? All right, so what did Jesus say about the temple? Luke 21, 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down, saying the entire temple will be demolished and destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans burnt the temple and the gold melted down between the rocks. So they literally pried all the rocks apart to pick the gold out from underneath it. That's the reason not one stone was left on it. So Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed. And was it destroyed? Yes. Yes. But it wasn't speaking against the temple. It was speaking a truth about the temple. All right? What, what about the law, the Mosaic law? Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said this. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to, to end them. That's what he said. Fulfill the word in the Greek, end them. Fulfill it. Put it into it. Complete it. It's done. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus. So they're complete. So you don't have to live by all the rules of how you cut your hair or what kind of clothes you wear with it or canny shrimp. Dear God, thank you that I live under the new covenant. I like me some shrimp, right? Right? And I don't, I don't have to wear long curlies here. I look really weird with curls, curls here. Are, are y'all, y'all awake? Y'all follow me? So what's going on here is this is that um, Stephen literally was speaking a message of freedom, but they were hearing a message of hate. I'm going to say it again because some of you didn't get it. Stephen had a beautiful message of redemption and freedom from the rules of the law and from the restrictions of the temple. He had a beautiful message of freedom but it was heard as a message of hate. Our culture's doing that too. The church can still call greed a sin, but love the greedy. 
The church of Jesus Christ, we as followers of Jesus, can call pride a sin, but love the proud. We can still call sexual immorality a sin, but love the sexual immoral. But the world won't accept that because what they hear is when you call anything a sin, you're a hater. So for the past decade or so, the church has tried to so coexist with sinful culture. We haven't wanted to pick a fight, so we've soft-spoken the truth. But guess what? You're still being called a hater. And listen, I know, I, know the con, uh, I know the condemnation that's on you. Anybody this past week you sinned, you did something wrong? I don't ever want to do that, and you did it anyway. Come on, anybody other than me? All right. Anybody ever say, I will not get mad over that, and then you got mad and you said something in your head or out of your mouth? All right, so we're, we're all a bunch of hypocrites. How dare you call anything sin? Hold on, hold on. How dare you call anything sin? Didn't you just call your actions and your own behavior sin? Oh, well, if you can call your own actions and behavior sin and recognize that you need grace of Jesus, how are you a hater when you recognize somebody else's actions and behaviors are sin and they need the grace of Jesus? Stop being condemned by the world, by your failures, because Jesus paid a little bit. What? Jesus paid 10%. Jesus paid half. What? How, what? Come on, say it with me. All. Come on, half of you participate. This is an all skate. Lace up your skates. Come on, skate with me. Grab your partner's hand. Let's go. Jesus paid it. Every sin you commit and every sin everybody else commits, so it's not hate to acknowledge things are against God's best. It is love. And I want to show you a quote. I read this quote. This is really good. Unconditional love does not mean unconditional approval. So let me pick on Pastor Matt here for a second, all right? <laughs> Pastor Matt is married to Sam, and, uh, and Sam don't take no crap. That's true. That's true. If you know Sam, that's true. All right. But let's say Pastor Matt... Oh, Sam loves you too. I've, I've heard her. She loves you. She's loyal, loves you wonderfully. But let's just say, just, this is just an illustration, everyone. Just an illustration. Let's say Pastor Matt has a girlfriend on the other side of town and starts sleeping with another girl. Let's just say that would happen. Yeah. Now, Sam comes in and says, but I still love him. And I'm like, well, then you got to you got to become a threesome then because unconditional love requires unconditional. No, no. We wouldn't say that, would we? Why wouldn't we say that? Because she may love him, but she's going to demand right behaviors out of him, correct? All right. It's not hate to call sin, sin. It's not hate to call the destructive philosophies of this culture sin. Listen, they're trying to destroy a generation of kids, and they're doing a good job at it because you're letting them get by with it and not speaking the truth. Tell your kids, you're either a guy or you're a girl. Amen. 
Don't believe me, believe the World Health Organization, an article promoting transgenderism that said, oh, by the way, if you have a, if you have an X chromosome or Y, I forget, X, is it X? Y? Which Y? If you have a Y chromosome, you're a dude. That's, that's the World Health Organization saying it. Listen, we're all on the spectrum. Well, listen, listen, guys, listen. When are we going to quit saying that the stupidity of this world is all right? And, and listen, I'm not saying that because I hate. I'm saying that because I'm watching kids not identify in Jesus with who he made them, handcrafted them to be, and made them with a purpose, on purpose, and made them with a calling on their life. And, and I'm watching them being led astray into the lies of the devil so that they're being destroyed and they're wandering around spending all, listen, spending all their time and energy fighting whether they're a dog that needs to poop in a, in a tray at school or not rather than learning how to read. Amen. Rather than learning you're special. That God made you special. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. He wants you to do something only you can do and quit fighting with the world's identity of you and learn to find his identity of you and then you can find security which you aren't going to get from all those lies. And if I'm a hater, if you call that hate, then you have no idea how much I love. Because I'm going to tell you something, if he's cheating on his wife, I'm going to beat the holy crap out of him. <laughs> or And the unholy crap too. It's both coming out. Because unconditional love does not mean unconditional acceptance or approval. I can love you and disagree with your behaviors just like, hold on, wait, wait, back up. Just like I established that you love you and you disagree with your own behaviors too. This is way too deep for a Sunday morning, right? The standard is not my morality. The standard is God's holiness. All right. So the third thing, what was Stephen's response? Man, I got, I got three minutes. Can y'all listen fast? I literally have three minutes for a page and a half of notes. All right, here we go. What was Stephen's response? Well, the high priest asked him if the accusation was true. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. <laughs> and I never got the full meaning of this. Remember the accusation is he's speaking against the temple and he was speaking against the law. So you know what he does? He takes 30... Three verses, I believe it is, to establish a strong Jewish background. And then he comes in chapter 7 to verse 35. It's a beautiful sermon. The sermon is there for a purpose. It's to set up for these verses. He's now going to answer the accusations made against him. So in verse 35, he says, this same Moses, who was the giver of the law, he says, this same Moses, they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge over us, was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. They didn't want him, but he was anyway. Though the, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and in the Red Sea for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, 
Notice the prophecy of the Messiah Jesus. God will raise up a prophet like me from your own people. So what Stephen just did there is he transitioned and said, we got Jesus here, a prophet like Moses, who's going to put an end to fulfillment to the law and an end to the temple. Regarding the law, our fathers had the law, but they rejected it. It's what he said. Look at chapter 7, verse 38. He was in the assembly of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on them. So he's talking now about Moses receiving the law. But our ancestors did what? They refused to obey, and they did what? Instead, they rejected him, and they turned their hearts back to their sinful life in Egypt. So what's going on here is what Stephen is pointing out is, you're saying I'm teaching against the law, but you yourselves and your fathers refused to obey the law, and since you refused to obey the law, the law didn't work for you either. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the righteous requirements of the law. I'm quoting Bible there. So, all right. So, regarding the temple, uh, verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle, the covenant law with them in the wilderness. So, the covenant law means that the Holy of Holies place in the covenant, the, the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant, and they had it. And it was made as God was directed Moses through the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them and they took it in the land from the nations God drove out before them and remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor. At that time, he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, so a, a place for this ark to camp. But it was Solomon who built the house. So if we finally get to the temple, the temple is finally built. However, quoting Scripture, Stephen says, the most high God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. And even the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build? <laughs> Think about this. They were trying to locate God in one location. And God's saying, no, 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 no. The highest heavens can't fulfill me. You can't put me in one spot. And he is quoting the scriptures saying, you can't put me in one spot, God says. Now, this is the place that they use to focus on their relationship with God, to give them a connection point with God, but in no way was God limited to that box. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? And by the way, what Stephen was saying is, you don't have to go to a place and obey a bunch of rules. What you have to do is you have to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. And when you accept him as Lord, you become the place where God inhabits on earth. And his spirit in you drives you to obey all the righteous requirements that God desires called holiness. Stephen makes it clear that the problem is not his message, but their hearts. Look at verse 51, you stiff-necked people. <laughs> now, that's a way to make friends and influence people. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Well, you may have had the ceremony when you were a little boy, the peritamo. <laughs> but you know what? They didn't do your ears and they didn't do your heart. You're still covered with a hardness of heart. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? Now even those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you didn't obey it either. Man, he puts this out there. 
So what do you think their response to this was? Well, here's their response. They killed him. They loved. Listen, he's trying to tell them how to live a life of freedom, and they're hating and calling him the hater. Acts 7.54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. <laughs> Notice Stephen's calm. Stephen's just telling people truth, and he's calm. But what's everybody else doing? Yeah! Church, be calm. Love, be calm. Share the good news of Jesus. But understand this. Even though you love and you're calm, you can expect hate. And you can expect to be called a hater. And some of you can expect to get fired. Book of Revelation coming to pass right now, huh? Back to you can't buy or sell unless you buy the world's standards. My question to you is, are you going to be a Daniel? Are you going to be another one of those people that just kowtows to the world? God's called you to more. So what happened? Acts 7:60. Oh, no, back, back to the previous. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, this witnesses all laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. They're, this is here for a reason. Why is this here for a reason? Because Saul became the Apostle Paul. Yes. Stephen was a witness to the truth, was hated and killed just for sharing the freedom of Jesus. But Stephen would have had a limited impact on the world. You know who had, well, you're still reading half of the New Testament written by this other dude. Because Paul's life was forever changed by watching how Stephen suffered and died. What if God called you to be a person that was faithful to him and you never saw the victory in your lifetime, but you saw someone come up behind you, someone came up behind you that changed the world through your faithfulness? What if your call isn't to change the world, but to be the one that inspires the one who will? What if your call is to die? What if your call is to suffer and to be faithful? This is heavier than normal. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to decide to follow him. The world behind me, the cross before me. I will follow Jesus no matter what it costs. And God's not caught by surprise by this because he planned to have Saul there. And later on, the apostle Paul, Saul, the apostle Paul, that Saul became a world changer. Why? Because of how Stephen died. What did he do? Acts seven sixty. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stude's dying and he's praying forgiveness over those who are killing him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he prayed that prayer? Probably because in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said while he was dying on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Notice that these both guys are dying for the cause of Christ 
and yet they're praying prayers of forgiveness for those who are harming them. I need somebody that's healthy, a young man that's healthy, that can handle me. Come on up then, Josh, come on up. You're healthy, you can handle me messing with you a little bit? I ask, all right, you guys heard him say he's healthy, he can handle it, right? All right, last time I did this, uh, it wasn't good. What do I need? All right, here, you might want to pull that out of your ear real quick. There you go, all right, put it in your pocket. All right, so the word for forgive in the Bible is a word, it's a Greek word, ophemy, ophemy. Forgive means forgive or to let go is what ophemy means. So if I were to take Josh here and I were to come up behind him and he didn't drop his chin, but he let me get a rear naked on him. Hold on, let me get it right here. There you go. All right, now I got it. Uh, Now listen, I've got a rear naked on you and I've got you locked in. I don't care how you step, what you do. All I have to do is, you know what I have to do. If I do that, you're going out, right? It's just a matter of when, Mm -hmm. right? Y'all know, rear naked's pretty nasty, right? Especially when I'm locked like this. Yeah, there's no escaping. At this moment, when I start choking, what do you want me to do? Stop. Stop. (laughs) You you do, you want me to stop, right? Yeah, I I can't blame you. And, And you want me to get what? You want me to get off of you, right? Yep. You want me to get off of you? Yep. <laughs> All right, listen. Some of you are like, like me, thinking I'm choking him because of something he said or did to me a long time ago. And you know what he wants from me? He just wants me to get off of him. He wants me to let go of him because you know what? No matter what you said to me last week, you can't change it. Right. Even if you want to. Right. You can't go back and change it, right? Even if you should have showed up to my baseball game <laughs> when I was a three-year-old. <laughs> Why are you playing baseball at three? I don't know. But even if you should have showed up, <laughs> Dad, and you didn't show up, can you go back and show up now? Nope. Well, you can't? You guys get that? Thank you very much, Josh, because what I just showed you is this. A lot of you, you're still living your life holding somebody accountable for something they can't do anything about. They can't, even if they came to you and fully repented for cheating on you, they couldn't go back and change it. Even if they came to you and said, I should have been there, I shouldn't have said that, they can't change it. And you know what? They really need you to do? They need you to let it go, to get off of me. Because really what's going on in that scenario is I may have been pretending to choke him, but you know who was actually having their breath cut off? Me. Because unforgiveness is me drinking poison. or uh, Unforgiveness is me drinking poison, and hoping you die for it. And listen to what Jesus said. I'll say it one more time. Unforgiveness is me drinking the poison of unforgiveness and hoping you die. And one, more, one more verse. What did Jesus say? He said, can you give me the next one? If you don't forgive others their sins, God won't forgive you your sins. And there are people in this room right now, there, there are some of you, you're listening to me, and 
you're still holding unforgiveness towards somebody for what they did to you. And at some point, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to say, I get off of you. I forgive you. Listen, if, if they robbed you, I'm not saying you trust them. <laughs> don't let them keep your wallet if they robbed you. There's a difference between forgiveness and trust, and I don't have time to get into all that. But at some point, you need to, you need to pray like Stephen and Jesus. Father, forgive them because they don't even know how much they wounded. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And at some point, you're going to have to offer the forgiveness that you hope God offers you. Because if God were to come down heavy on you for everything you've done wrong, you'd just say, God, would you just get off of me? And he says, I'm willing to. You need to, you need to forgive the ones who've done you wrong. And that leads us to the final thing I want to say today. Three lessons to learn from Stephen on how to finish strong. Let's circle back around. Lesson number one, stay full of the Holy Spirit. The band's going to come now, so stay full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He was able to speak and to be used by God because he was full of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of Spirit in our lives. Pray and fast with me these 21 days for the power of the Holy Spirit. Second of all, don't abandon the truth no matter what it costs you. The truth is still the truth no matter what it costs you. And then thirdly of all, forgive those who even attack you. Forgive those who've done you wrong. I'd like to bow your heads with me today, and I want to ask a question in this room. As I was talking about forgiveness, you were there, God, God was talking to you. It wasn't me. God was talking to you. There's somebody or something in your life. There's somebody you need to forgive. And God was dealing with you that you just need to forgive them. You need to get off of them. Get off of me. Get, you need to just take your hands off, quit trying to punish them, and say, I forgive you. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy, but you need to say the words and you need to take that first step of forgiveness. And if that's you today and, and that's you and God knows it's you and you know it's you, you need to do that right now. Just lift your hand up. I want to pray with you. If you're in this space right now, yes, around this room, their hands up. Father God, you see every one of these that is saying the words, I forgive them right now and they forgive that means we entrust judgment to you, God. Not, we're not gonna, it's not our job anymore. We forgive them. Forgive them, Father. We ask you to be merciful to them. And I don't seek their punishment anymore. I seek them to be restored to you. In the name of Jesus. Father, forgive them. For I'm sure they don't even know what they did. They can't know the depths of that. Amen. Amen. Now, the second prayer I want to pray in this room is if you're in this place today and Jesus is not your Lord, it's your day to make him your Lord. And if that's you and you want to make Jesus your Lord right now, come on, it's your day. It's time for you to have the freedom and the identity that he offers you that gives you hope, a future, and a blessing. If that's you, 
and you know that's you and you need to accept Jesus as your Lord. Just lift your hand up real high. I want to pray with you right now around this room. If that's you, just lift your hand up really high. I want to pray with you. Yes. Yes. Are there others? Yes. Yes. Around this room. Anybody else? So, Father, right now, no one prays alone at Harvest Road. Jude, y'all pray with me out loud. Everybody together. Can we do this together? Dear Jesus, I believe in you. Please forgive me my sins. I trust you. I believe in your love. Have my life. And please give me yours. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that and you meant that, guess what? Jesus heard. He changed your identity, your person. You are now his child. You're his. Yeah, that deserves some celebration. You're his child.